If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Today we bring you the third episode of Beyond Us, an all-new series made in partnership with Essentia Foundation. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Hello and welcome to the Beyond Us series by the Institute of Art and Ideas. My name is Bernardo Kastrup. And my name is Fred Matzer. In this series, we are exploring four concepts that underpin and define the modern world. Knowledge, competition, language, and growth. And in each episode, we're joined by a leading thinker to help us, and hopefully you, see each concept in a new light. This is the third episode of the series, and today we are talking on language. Perhaps the most useful of human faculties, language allows us to communicate vital information about the external world and to organize social interaction. But we often have difficulty using language to convey the inner world of our conscious experience. Here to discuss the nature, uses and limitations of language with us is renowned British philosopher of language, Jennifer Hornsby. Welcome, Jennifer. Hello, Bernardo. Hello, Fred. Um, it's, it's good to have been invited to this. It's a pleasure to have you here, uh, Jennifer, to, to tackle this big topic. Um, we have a challenge because uh, we are going to be using language to talk about <laughs> language itself. Uh, and we want to make the conversation more general. We want to explore the nature of language, what it is, what it is not, how it relates to, to human, human consciousness, how it relates to our worldview. Um, and, and for the followers of the Beyond Us uh, series, uh, they will know that towards the end of each episode, we like to relate uh, the, the concept that we are discussing to, to society at large, to the moment we are living through, um, and, and ask ourselves what might the future bring uh, in that regard. So I'll start with a general question that appeals uh, not only to your philosophy expertise, but to your wisdom as an experienced human being. And the question is the following. Uh, to what extent is language really a description of an objective reality, of an objective state of affairs? And to what extent does it actually create a sort of linguistic reality tunnel 
in other words, uh, a, a kind of, of illusion. Uh, what do you think about this? You speak of language as a description, but I think it's a user of language who describes things. But would the linguistic construct be truly just a description of objective states of affairs, or is it as much a reflection of, of, of the, that who or of who uh, that describes uh, uh, the world? In other words, uh, is, is, are, are descriptions in language really objective and neutral? Or do they capture actually a subjective point of view, a sort of idiosyncratic reality tunnel, so to say? I think of any language as a shared thing. So it's not, as it were, just the speaker who's coming out with some words, who's attaching concepts to what one might call things in the world. Um, so if she says things and thereby applies words to things, I think she's um, achieved a record of how things are objectively, if you like. So you don't think that our use of extremely loaded terms, like um, the first one that comes to my mind is God. There are probably seven and a half billion different definitions of the word God, but we don't preface what we say by attaching our particular definition first. We just use the words uh, as um, they have meaning to us, and that meaning may not be entirely shared. Yeah, God, of course, is a difficult case. I mean, I think if I use the word, it depends whom I'm speaking to, quite how I think of the word as being understood, because what one wants to achieve in communication is a shared understanding. The speaker says it and the hearer hears it, and they um, n now both know what the speaker said. So if I was speaking to a theist, I'm sure I would um, use the word God on the assumption that it wasn't the case that God didn't exist. If we, if we listen to the newscast at eight o'clock, um, information is conveyed to us in language. Do you think that reflects a more or less objective state of affairs or is that too um, highly subjective in essence? I hope so. I mean, it'll depend a bit on what news channel I might be listening to whether I'm prepared to think that I'm learning how things are in some other part of the world, what happened yesterday in Parliament, as it might be. But, um, yeah, um, I don't know what hangs on calling those things objective parts of the world. I mean, I think if this is what actually happened in Parliament and that's what I'm told on the news, then I've come to know something that I didn't know before. If I'm told that in Myanmar, such and such is happening now because they might have a reporter there, then I think I learn something even about the present. I'll share with you my own uh, impression and I'll be glad to hear your, your commentary on it. Sometimes I, I, I am scared that um, our worldview, things that we take to be objective facts about reality out there, what reality is, how it behaves, our relationship with it, um, may reflect a lot more our own linguistic patterns of thinking and the linguistic structure of the way we think about the world. Uh, it can reflect as much about that as it may reflect a objective state of affairs like that. And every now and then I get caught with this, oh my God, I think this goes further than I would ever dare admit that, uh, that we are living in 
in linguistic reality tunnels, so to say, which are given by what we tell ourselves in inner language regarding the nature of the world and, and the states of affairs out there. Have you ever had an impression like that, that you so suddenly get caught off guard? <laughs> I don't think I share your fear. Um, okay. But I mean, that's partly because I think that um, language is that with, with, is something I share with others, as it were. So it's not as though there's me and my language and it confronts this world. And maybe it doesn't confront it in quite the way that I'd always hoped, not sharing your fear, as it were. Um, I'm sure Freddie will try to, we want to take you more to the subjective side of things, you know, descriptions of inner states of affairs, like our inner feelings. But before we go there, um, I, I don't want to insist too much and beat a dead horse, but uh, there have been studies, uh, studies showing, for instance, that um, our perception of colors may be highly influenced by the words we have to express the differences between colors. So if your language has a richer color palette in words, uh, then you see more colors or the other way around. Like the, there are studies on a, on a tribe in Africa that um, the tribe is able to discern a lot more subtle differences in green than Westerners are. And so happens that their language has a lot more words for green <laughs> than, than, than our language has. So would this suggest some sort of linguistic loading, even in our perceptions themselves, or you don't, or you don't give credibility to this kind of studies? Because as grown-ups, we've all learned some particular human language. Some of us are lucky enough to have learned two, as it were. And um, we make use of such concepts as we've acquired by virtue of learning language and living in the world in which this language is used. Um, but um, so, and, and maybe the fact that we failed to learn the concepts which people who have, who can distinguish many shades of green and have words for each of them have learnt. But I don't think that's a handicap to their knowing whether something is green, as we would use it in English. Yeah, so what you're saying, um, Jennifer, is also when you don't know about it, you don't miss it. And it only becomes clear when a person that has that nuances in language and in observation, in this case in colors, that it cannot be shared on the level with the other person that doesn't know it. But perhaps by knowing it, can learn it. No, indeed, many of us that uh, of us feel that language can't do justice to the inner world of consciousness. And the question is, do we simply need better words and sentences, or will it, this always be impossible? What, uh, what do you think? I suppose I'm not inclined to think of consciousness as an inner world, as if it were kind of something separable from the world of which we think we speak. Um, I mean, I, I, I may be differ from many philosophers in thinking this. I know some philosophers think that um, we could give a material description of a person and that wouldn't account for the fact of her being conscious. So we've got to add something um, in order to say what consciousness is. Um, but, you know, I think there are human beings and they are conscious as it were. And <laughs> that's just a fact about a speaker that she's yeah. conscious conscious usually of what she's saying. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't think of consciousness as 
attaching to an inner world. I should say, I'm, in saying that, I'm not um, attending to something that Bernardo said earlier, which was connected with knowledge specifically of oneself, um, because I'm thinking, as it were, I'm conscious of the world around me. I can tell you what's here. I'll, I'll be conscious in so saying. I'll assume that you consciously hear what I say. Um, that, of course, doesn't um, speak to the specific question of what one knows of oneself, um, which perhaps one's particularly inclined to think of as inner. Is it, is it more difficult, you think, to establish commonality of meaning and, and, and intent when it comes to our inner world? Because when it comes to, to objective facts out there, like if I invent a word for a house, like the word house, uh, we can establish commonality of meaning by pointing to the house and saying, that's what we mean by house. But if you're feeling in a very particular way, it's difficult to point at that and say, this is what I mean by the word sadness or despair. Uh, we have those words, but isn't it more difficult to establish this commonality of meaning when it comes to our own private inner feelings? Yeah, you spoke of yourself as inventing the word house. I, I, I deny that you invented it. I know what it means. It's, you know, it's a word of English which you used. Um, and I, I think um, there's a tendency to think concerning any word that someone might at some point have stipulated what it means, as it were. So a house means something that people, blah, 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 blah. they see that people, blah, 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 blah. so and I'm going to call that a house. Um, but that seems to me just wrong. I mean, you know, um, we grow up in the language which is spoken around us, spoken probably by our parents and carers and others around us. And insofar as we know what words mean, it's because we've come to know what they mean through this process of acquiring language. So words emerge, they are not merely defined. They're not merely defined. I suppose that's one thing I'm saying, yeah. yeah. I mean, which isn't to say that you can't, for some words, um, want to give a definition of it. And someone who didn't know what a word meant, if they were fluent in language, you could use other words to enable them to deter to understand now what this word, which they hadn't previously heard, had meant and continues to mean. Which brings me to, the, to a topic pretty prevalent in society today. Um, I mean, in the world of you know alternative facts uh, and fake news, um, when we hear people talking or saying something, so often we sort of zoom into the words. Uh, we analyze what the person said, and and may we lose from sight when we do that uh, what the person actually meant. In other words, what, what is more important? What has been said? or the intention behind those words. I know that um, when I'm talking to my girlfriend, I'm always looking for what she means. Um, but when it comes to, to you know, the social games at large, politics, economics, uh, the news, um, we zoom into words. Could, could language be misleading um, in that regard as a, a sort of a, a layer which expresses meaning but also distorts meaning? I, sh I should say first, I, I don't think there are alternative facts, as it were. So I think, um, at least so far as what we're apt to think of as factual language is concerned, um, uh, we can use sentences which state facts, or if we lie, we might use a sentence which precisely doesn't state a fact. So I'm not, um, I, I don't think I 
um, scrutinize the news, for instance, um, to de determine whether there might be some alternative facts in here. I mean, I like to think I rely on reliable sources and um, that uh, by and large what I learn are the facts as they are. Um, but you, you're talking about private conversations. You want um, to know what your girlfriend means. And yeah. I take it that um, I take it that ordinarily she, like anyone else, in the first instance means what she says, as it were, but there's more to it than that. I mean, why should she be saying this? So there may be something which led her to say what she did, which it's important for you, as her boyfriend, to come to know. I think what I'm trying to, to get at is what are the limitations of language? Do we make too much of what is said as opposed to what is meant? Can language really describe the full gamut of our inner experience? Can language even describe uh, objective states of affairs? Uh, in other words, I'm questioning the perfection of the tool. But this, the sense I get from you is almost that um, language isn't even a tool, it isn't even invented, it, it, it is one with objective states of affairs. Um, would that be fair to say? If, if that's what you think, I would, I would ask you then, uh, what makes you come to this rather absolute conclusion? I, I think nobody um, knows the origins of the first human language or would know actually what to say about whether such and such in human history, if they could even know it, constituted the first human language. But I'm, I'm thinking of language as, as you and I know it, um, and we're both users of it. Um, it. It does seem as though you're, um, what's different between us is my insistence that language is shared that, you know, I don't have a language all on my own, nor does your girlfriend have a language all on her own. And you said actually at the very beginning, we're going to have to use language to talk about language. Well, actually, there's nothing else that we can talk with. I mean, of course, we yeah. express our feelings for people other than by talking. But uh, if, we, if we're going to talk, then it's language that we have to use. And um, for the most part, we have conversations with people who share our language and us who understand what we say as we mean it. I mean, there can be many, many hiccups, <laughs> but... Uh... Well, I, I, I see where you're coming from. I think my, my, my view is colored by my own experience. I'm, I, 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 I'm forced to think daily in three languages uh, and I often catch myself uh, thinking about the same thing differently, depending on uh, in which language I'm thinking. So the th my thinking reflects the structure of language. In, Dutch, in the Dutch language, uh, objects uh, tend to come first uh, and verbs go out to the end. So it forces me to think through the complete thing I'm trying to get at before I say the first word. In English, the verbs come first, so you can immediately start saying something before you thought it through to the end. And then Portuguese is again differently. It's a language that has a lot more synonymous words, but m more, more nuanced. So I, I see that happening myself. But uh, if I can ask you 
ask this question more precisely. Uh, are you with uh, uh, Noam Chomsky that uh, language reflects a universal grammar that is encoded in our genes, that we don't really invent it, that language is a reflection of how we think and how we have to think because we are human beings? There's an extent to which I agree with Chomsky, which I think possibly you don't agree with him about. Um, I am apt to think that it's a characteristic of um, human children, that they will acquire the language of those around them, as it were, and which Chomsky will put by saying there's an innate language module or whatever. Um, he seems to um, think that this has a universality, which I might want to deny attaches to it, because I think, I mean, he's, he, they acquire the language of those around them, but of course, the language of those around them has been formed because it's um, it, it existed for many years um, uh, in the context of the social practices of those around them, which might be quite different from the social practices of, of a typical person in the UK who speaks English. Um, so I think <laughs> I think there are things that Chomsky is apt to say which I would disagree with. But I think the um, sort of innatism in Chomsky is something I sort of agree with, and, and perhaps you don't. No, I, I actually agree with him. I think there is a universality to the structure of our thinking, and I do think we, we think in linguistic terms uh, by using concepts, symbols, and grammatical structures to weave those together uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of inner, inner narrative. And I, act, I even think that we often confuse reality with our own inner narrative without even knowing <laughs> that you're confusing those. But uh, maybe I'll ask Fred. Fred, uh, uh, any comments? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking uh, what we started with uh, that Jennifer said, that language is there to, to share with others. And I always say it's sharing of information, everything that expresses itself in form or that we can be connected with through with our senses. And so uh, it can you be used in an authentic, honest way to express our thoughts and feelings because it's not only thoughts that we are connected with, but also that what coincides, what goes through the not rational part but informers, for example, through feelings, which is not... So if we look at language and we look at sharing and sharing information, language is part of it, but it's also the smell, it are gestures of the others. So it's, it's one of the ways to bridge or to disbridge or to disconnect. So, yeah, and often I think, but this is not part of the conversation, at a very early stage... Uh, we were babies. We didn't have language and we still were in contact with our parents or other babies. And uh, we could just smell an apple without knowing the concept of an apple. We, uh, we know how the color was, how it smelled, how it felt and things like that. So <laughs> that often brings me to the question, uh, at what level does it serve us? Isn't language sometimes a little bit too dominant, too dominant over other ways of uh, information exchange? Because 
uh, when I connect with a baby or even with a dog, you know, or also with a dog, I can go more or less to the heart of the dog by connecting my own heart. And then it is beyond language. So, yeah, this is just not a question. Perhaps it is a question. It's more a reflection that I'm uh, getting now. Yeah, I think the question that comes to me when you said that is, is there a world beyond language? In the sense that a world, a world that cannot be described in language. I think uh, <laughs> I'm tempted to answer that question as you put it. No. <laughs> um, I mean, I, you know, I fail to know what the world is when it's something indescribable. I mean, philosophers have very different um, ways of using the phrase the world. I'm apt to think the world is <laughs> that wherein we all live, and indeed our dogs and all other yeah. living things live. Um, but uh, is there anything to that world that cannot be said, and yet is the case? People sometimes struggle to say things. They, um, <laughs> They, there's something that they'd like to say and find it impossible to say. Um, I don't deny that that's a possible phenomenon. But you think those things are describable, at least in principle? Maybe that one, ex one experiences emotions and has to um, give up, as it were, tr trying to formulate exactly how one feels using language. I mean... I should say, um, I mean, this is in response, I think, to something Fred said. I don't think language stands alone. I mean, if, if, if you're a student of language or linguistics or philosophy of language or whatever, you take this phenomenon of exchange of information, then realize a whole lot more can go on than simply exchange of information, commands can be given, et cetera, et cetera, feelings expressed. Um, but of course, that's never all that's going on when language is used. Yeah. I mean, I was very struck by this, actually, by reading um, the Norwegian um, Knausgård. Um, he was giving an account of what went on at um, Hitler's campaign rallies, as it were. Um, and his thought was that, actually, what was said, if you see what I mean, if he transcribed it, was utterly, was more or less irrelevant to what was going on. I mean, what he was doing was whipping up emotions in order that um, people should think that there was a, <laughs> a better world without politics, free from the usual constraints of rationality, etc., etc. And that was what they found immensely attractive. And that was how he came to have so much power. So this was the suggestion. I mean, I don't know anything about it. It was written in the context mm -hmm. of thinking about um, what... Uh, Trump might have done on the 6th of February. That's why there was this discussion. Um, and, but I'm sure he got something right. So as it were, language was being used, but much more was going on than one could possibly know about by reading the words that were said. But those goings on were still, in principle, describable by language, uh, you would say? I, I actually looked up um, a bit of the Knazgold um, and I think he thought that what was going on escaped analysis. So he was able to wow. tell one, as it were, the state of mind in which those listening to a, a, a national socialist campaigner, um, the state of mind that people listening to such a one came to be in. 
Um, and of course he used words, but it isn't as though those were the words that were being used by the person who was putting them into that yeah, state of mind. Yeah, yeah, I get you. Re regarding your own, your own theory of action, uh, Jennifer, um, um, you, you make an argument that to me is uh, eminently linguistic. And the, the point to try to make is that um, actions are not just bodily movement, right? Actions take place underneath the skin, so to say. Um, and, and your argument for that is based on the idea of transitive and intransitive uh, verbs. Is that incorrect, what I just said? <laughs> no, I think, um, you know, just as I've said, we use language in the world. I think we act in the world. Um, so, and it would be perfectly wrong to think that um, we had even started on the count of action by saying actions are bodily movements. Though, of course, philosophers who are interested in philosophy of action think they're interested in, as they might put it, mental, physical connections. So bodily movement comes to the fore because when one's acting, one's body's up to something, not, so to speak, just one's mind. But not that that's necessarily a good way of, move, of thinking about it, but it explains why someone, why a philosopher might say all actions are bodily movements, as, as indeed some philosophers have. But that was precisely my point. Um, the question is a much broader, almost metaphysical question, right? Uh, are actions uh, an external reflection of inner intent or not? And what, uh, what strikes me was, at least in uh, the, the first, uh, Jennifer <laughs> uh, went about it uh, with a linguistic argument to address what was, in principle, a metaphysical question. And that, to me, was very striking because it seemed to put language at the very forefront of a worldview. Um, but would you say you departed from that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was earlier um, meaning to question your use of inner, inner consciousness, as it were. Um, and of course, I can intend to do something or other, and there's nothing outward to show for it. But I think as long as I'm actually doing something, I mean, I may be doing something trivial, like drinking a cup of coffee or um, making a telephone call, I, I think my intention is, so to speak, therein. It's outer. What I'm doing, I'm doing intentionally. If I, I, I can't resist this. Uh, I, I have to ask you this. Um, uh, the, the original Wittgenstein would adopt the correspondence theory of truth, right? I mean, you can make statements, and if those statements correspond to external states of affair, affairs, then those statements are correct. Otherwise, they're not correct. Um, the later Wittgenstein... Uh, basically said all philosophy is just language games. All philosophical problems are language problems. They have no objective existence. They don't need to be solved. They are not out there. It's stuff we make up uh, with our use of words. H how would you see the present Jennifer, the mature Jennifer, in relation to that changing Wittgenstein's uh, view of, of philosophical problems and language? Yeah, I think the early Wittgenstein, the one who wrote the Tractatus, um, was, um, how shall I put this, in, interested in symbolic systems. Right. Whereas the later Wittgenstein, and you've used the notion of the language game, was interested in language as we actually know it. Um, so if, if I wanted to um, say stuff in philosophy of language, I'd be much more likely to um, want to say such things as the later Wittgenstein, the one who, of the investigations, said. But then wouldn't that imply that um, the meaning of every word 
is uh, dependent on the meaning of other words, which sort of relativizes language completely and makes it difficult to say uh, whether language can actually capture objective facts, that the meaning of what you say is dependent on the meaning of the other words involved in the game. They are not absolute, they are, they are relative, they depend on that network of interrelated uh, meanings. Um, to me, my interpretation, and I, I'm the first to admit that my interpretation can be completely wrong because I'm not really a, a Wittgenstein scholar, but what, what the contrast I see between my understanding of what Wittgenstein meant there and what I picked up from you today is that you seem to attribute more definite meaning to words as opposed to a relative meaning, the meaning they have when they are included in, in a network, in a web uh, of words that give each other relative meaning. Yeah, I don't know um, that I want to, to, to speak of relative meaning, but I think uh, um, one should think, as I guess Wittgenstein wanted to, to think of language as a whole in trying to um, say something about the playing of language games, as he put it. Yeah, one necessarily so. One at a time. I mean, I think if I talked about the meaning of words earlier, it was because you were asking me questions about that. And I, you know, I don't think it's wrong to say concerning any particular word that it has some meaning. Um, ordinarily, um, one can say what a word means easily enough. Sometimes when, if someone doesn't know the meaning, one has to um, go go to other words, resort to other words to explain the meaning. Um, but I don't think that that makes the meaning relative, as it were. So you do attribute to words a definite, um, I, I will use the word absolute, but I don't mean it in a super metaphysical sense. I just mean it as non-relative. <clears throat> you do think our words have non-relative meaning. So they do capture an objective state of affairs, whether it's true or not can be verified, uh, but our words don't depend on the implicit words we have in the networks of meaning in our own minds. Like what I may mean by God depends on what I mean by a number of other words like transcendence, spirit, uh, matter, uh, causality. All that gives relative meaning to the word God as I use it or in the context I use it. But you'd say, well, words beyond that should have very well-grounded, definite meaning. Fred? <laughs> no, I think, is there any way a objective reality? Aren't we all people that live in a different place in a different time? And we look at it from a perspective. And we can, if we check, if we sit at one side of the table, table we might have a kind of same... Uh, idea about what we saw even then it our observation may be handicapped because one person may have fever and the other person is sneezing so it is very I think I've always struggled with the idea of what is objective the more precise you go into uh, details the more difficult it is to see what is common ground in objectivity so I, I uh, but but Jennifer, something comes up. Uh, you being an expert on words, um, I I realize that we humans are one of the millions of forms of expression on this planet, 
And as I think to know, we are the only ones that uh, help our communication to do it as well in words. But in when it relates to information exchange, but ants, bees, trees, um, dogs or birds, or they all communicate all the time with one another without words. They uh, share information fields. Um, so we are quite an, in an exemption. And that comes sometimes to the thought, how would it be if we keep on behaving like babies and not use words? Of course, it's not a rather abstract question, but it was just an idea that comes up right now. I think it's characteristic of human beings to be language users. And yeah. I think that goes in hand with their, um, the, the kinds of knowledge that they yeah. can have, as it were. Um, yeah. For instance, of the past. I mean, th think how much we know by virtue yeah. of being able to say what happened. Um, That's unique, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I think we are very much unique as a species. Uh, yeah. But we're not unique in in some sense, communicating, um, having, no, no, others, that, yeah. having others yeah. um, come by bits yeah. of information because others have done something by virtue of which they know it. I'll ask you a more concrete question. What can philosophy tell us about the darker side of language, how, how it can be used to lie, mislead and manipulate people? What, what, what do you think about that? It's sometimes, I mean, in recent years, it's come to amaze me how ready people are to believe what they hear when manifestly, as far as I'm concerned, what they hear is simply a lie. Um, yeah. And I think there are all kinds of ways, actually, not simply by lying, that um, language is implicated in um, what people at large come to know, say, within a political system. Mm -hmm. So... I, I was actually reading something recently about um, someone who talked about his experience as a politician. He's now, he, he was a member of the Conservative Party and I, well, I'm sure he's still a member, but now no longer um, uh, is any sort of minister. But he, he was saying that what went on in discussion was a failure to say what was obvious because there were obvious things which needed to be brought into the discussion, when one would have thought needed, but they didn't want those things to be known. Yeah. I think there are all kinds of ways in which language can be used, specifically perhaps by politicians, to manipulate yeah. what's known by the community. Um, but I don't think I need to be a philosopher to be in a position to see that that goes on. Do you think we we think in language, uh, Jennifer? Is there a tight relationship, you think, between grammatical, syntactical structures and the way we reason and we think about things? Yeah, I think we're, <laughs> um, we're language users and we're concept-using creatures, as it were. There's then a question how one uses the word thought, because some of the things Fred was asking me were <laughs> requiring me to think of animals as thinkers. And I think one does have to think, as it were, that they do things um, because things are thus and so. And of course, if I'm human, I can say how things were, which led me to do such and such. So um, 
there's use of the word thought so that um, it's very hard not to attach it to yeah. animals. Um, nonetheless, I think ordinary we think of, when we think of thought, we think of human thought. We think you can't have such thought, um, save that you're human, that's to say a language user. We know, uh, Jennifer, that language sort of evolves, right? I mean, English today is totally different than ninth century English to the point that no English speaker today would have any idea <laughs> of ninth uh, century English. It was completely different and that happens in all languages. Um, where do you see language going um, in the future? How will it evolve and how do you think that will impact our way of life, our worldview, how we interact with one another? Is there interplay there? And if there is, where do you see this going long term? I mean, I'm sure language will change. And, and I think actually, um, at least if one's thinking about English, new words, as they're called, things which um, dictionary makers have to add to their dictionaries, um, get added at a rate that they never would have done, um, say, 50 years ago. So I'm sure that the evolution of language, which presumably goes hand in hand with the evolution of um, stuff that people find themselves needing to want to say, um, is um, increasing a pace, as it were. But quite where um, it's leading, I don't know. And do you think there is a correlation between that evolution and how society itself evolves, our values, our ways of interacting with one another? I think if... Um, Uh, words which are derogatory of groups of people were eliminated from the language, we'd live in a better world. But of course, I don't, <laughs> I don't see um, how it could be that those words came to be eliminated, except that there weren't groups of people who, um, for instance, were racist. So we could progress, but... Um... There are many variables at play here and we can't uh, wrestle control over the future evolution of language and, and society. Jennifer, it's been a pleasure uh, to speak to you today. I wish we had more time, um, but we have to leave it here today. Um, we are very grateful uh, for your participation and maybe we look forward to, speak to speaking to you again another time in the future. Thanks a lot. Good. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you also to Fred. Thank you very much, Jennifer. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation. We will be back in a few weeks with episode four on growth. Until next time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.